Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. This morning we'll be looking at verses 42 through 47. And we are continuing our series that we began last week on Church Matters, because the church matters. And we looked at last week, Pastor Samuel reminded us of the nature of the church. We saw from 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is called the household of God. We are a family in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, so we ought to act like a family. But we are also the living church of the living God. We have life, eternal life, because our God is alive. We are also called the pillar and buttress, or the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church holds to the truth, it stands strong with the truth in the midst of a very shaky world, and we proclaim as the truth, we proclaim to the world, thus saith the Lord. So in light of the nature of the church, and I'll tell you, every week that we go through, you could spend months studying, if not a lifetime, studying those topics, but this morning we're going to shift to, what are the marks of a church? And as you can imagine, there are many different opinions on how many marks there are. Certain people think there are nine. You might know who they are. It was interesting studying this, how many uh, different opinions there are, but they all seem to come back to a core few, and we'll look at them this morning. But I want to ask you, what do you look for in a church? What do you look for in a church? At some point, you have probably or many of us have probably been on the never-fun hunt of finding a new church home. And as one goes through that search, it becomes quickly evident that though there might be a church building on every corner, that does not mean there is a good biblical church on every corner. And so today, we want to find out from the Scriptures, what are the essential elements that ought to be present in a local church? What do you want to be looking for? What are non-negotiables that must be there? Well, we're going to narrow in on Acts 2. You can look at other passages, but I believe Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, give us a nice picture of that. We get a, Luke gives us a picture of a new and growing church, and he gives us four essential functions, four essential marks of the church. And then he provides some examples of the fruit that came about because of the commitment to those essentials. And those essentials are still important to this day and still ought to be present in the church to this day. And the point of this section is that a healthy church is devoted to God and one another. A healthy church is devoted to God and one another, and we'll look through this. Now, for those of you who are like to outline, I'm going to break this up into two sections. The first is verse 42, we see the functions of the church, and then verses 43 through 47 are the fruits, functions and fruits. Let's read our text for this morning. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We are in, obviously, not the first chapter of Acts, so let's set a little context for the book of Acts. It's often called the Acts of the Apostles, but if you think of the story here, what it unfolds, you could almost say this is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Acts is a historical narrative. It is describing the birth of the church, the growth of the church. And as as it shifts a few chapters in, we see the growth of the church in the face of severe persecution, showing that God's plans can't be stopped. But being historical narrative that it is, it is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. 
And so when we come to this, we have to keep that context in mind when we try to draw application. But there are principles that can be drawn from this book, things we can learn from these accounts today specifically that we can learn about the church that we can apply even here. Now, Acts chapter 2 begins with the Holy Spirit having been sent by Christ and the Father, coming to fill and dwell with the believers. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in foreign languages. It draws a crowd because there was a crowd in Jerusalem at this time for a feast. And so it draws a crowd, and the crowd is pondering and is puzzled. You know, are these men drunk? What's going on? And Peter, you might remember, stands up and preaches to them. He proclaims Jesus Christ crucified. He preaches a sermon, and we see as he goes through it that the crowd becomes convicted of their sin, obviously a work of the Holy Spirit, and they cry out, what should we do? They are cut to the heart, as the text says. And so Peter tells them that they need to repent and be baptized. And we see at the end of verse 41 that they did. And the Lord added about 3,000 souls to the church that day. Would have been amazing. Can you imagine that? I mean, like, transplant yourself back to that scene. And at the preaching of a sermon, a sermon 3,000, probably more, counting women or children that would have responded as well, all in one moment responded one day. They would need a big parking lot. He preaches repentance to them. He tells them, This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. He was delivered up. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified him. And yet in this crucifixion, you can be forgiven of your sins. And Jesus is alive and you can have eternal life in him. And they repent. They turn from their sin. They trust in Christ, and they are baptized. They publicly testify to their faith in Christ. They identify with Him in baptism. And so then in verse 42, Luke begins to give us a snapshot of what life was like at that point going forward. Verse 42, we see the functions of the church. Our first point And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You can think of this verse as a a summary, a heading of the essential functions, the essential marks that characterize this early church. It begins, and they. Who is the they? We kind of want to know who the they are. Well, if we go backwards, we see the they are those who were added, about 3,000. Okay, well, who was added? Well, we keep going backwards. We see it was those who, baptized, who were baptized. Okay, who were those who were baptized? It was those who received the word that was preached. Those who repented. What's the lesson we can learn there? The church is made up of those who are trusting in Christ, who have repented and trusted in Christ. So this group, they devoted themselves. They continued in. They persisted in. The word used here has the idea of an ongoing devotion, an ongoing prioritizing. Everything in their life was now focused on this main priority, or these main priorities, I could say. They didn't just just get saved and then go about their merry ways. And nor were they, they, they get saved and they were only sporadically involved with the church at that point. Instead, they became consumed with church life. And the first thing they were, we could say, the first function is they had devotion to the Word. Devotion to the Word. And I will just tell you up front, this is where most of our discussion will be this morning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted, continually persisting in hearing the apostles teach And we might remember from Matthew 28, Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples, 
baptizing them, sound familiar? We already saw that right before this section, and teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. The apostles are acting in obedience to the commission given by the Lord himself. They are teaching. Now, before we talk about teaching, let's know what it says. The apostles' teaching. These were qualified men, qualified leadership. They were the ones the Lord himself had put in place to lead the church and to be given the task to teach the church. You would see a few chapters later here in Acts that they realize they are to give themselves to the ministry of teaching the word and prayer. But it is these men who led, who taught. And as the church would grow, we see through Acts, and then we'll see later in the epistles, that He would have the leadership set to be qualified men, still qualified men, who would be called elders. And the scripture is very clear on these qualifications they were to meet. Most dominantly, they were to be character qualifications. They had to meet a certain character qualification. We see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. These men were to lead the church, and we see uh, the attitude that even the Apostle Paul has towards elders that were placed in the church. In Acts 20, when he meets with the Ephesian elders, it says in Acts 20, 28, Paul warns them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So these men were to meet a certain qualification of character and they were given the high task to which they would answer to God for of leading the church. One point before we move on, we could say this, if a church does not meet the standards of qualified leadership, then you do not have a healthy biblical church. So these men were teaching and the people were devoted to it. So you ask, What were they teaching? Well, I'm so glad you asked. They were teaching the gospel. They were teaching the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We see that in Peter's sermon. That, especially to Israel, saying this Messiah that was promised did come. And he suffered as that lamb in your place, being beaten and killed to actually pay for your sins, and though though you acted in rebellion against God, God used it for the most amazing thing to actually redeem you. And this Christ is not dead, he has risen again, and by the way, he will return. So you must now today repent, because A, you don't know how long you're gonna live, and B, you don't know when he's gonna come back, it could be at any moment. They preached the gospel. They were consumed by the gospel. And it's amazing to think their Bible at this time would have been the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be amazing sitting in on those sermons? Open up to Zechariah and let me show you how Christ was, it was foretold that Christ would come. That would be amazing. They proclaimed that people should repent and trust in Jesus. Have you followed their teaching? their command to repent and trust in Christ. But it wasn't just respond to the gospel. They taught how do we live in light of the gospel. And we have that teaching in the rest of the New Testament when we see the letters to the churches. Here is now how we live in light of what Christ has done. The apostles' teaching was central, essential to the early church. They were commanded to do so. Even Timothy was commanded later on to preach the word in season and out of season. He was told to go and entrust to others, to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. The church is to be about the business of passing on this good news to men, and you would say to all, so that they can go on and pass the good news on more and more. They preached the word. We are blessed. We're so blessed because we have the full word here. 
We have all the New Testament epistles, the life of Jesus and the Gospels. We get to see the glimpse of Acts of the early church. We get to read amazing letters like Ephesians and Colossians and then see what in the world was going on in Corinthians. You know, it's, it's amazing what we have. And what we have, the scriptures tell us, remind us, it is authoritative. This is the standard by which the church leads. It's the word of God. It is sufficient. Everything we need for life and godliness is right here. The Spirit uses it to transform us, change us to be more like Christ. It is powerful. It is more powerful than any teaching in this world because it is the Word of God that cuts. It is the Word of God that can penetrate the hard heart, that can change the rebel in his ways, that can soothe the hurt, that can calm the anxious heart that can set free those who are enslaved to sin there is nothing like this word and we we have it we get it we get it in our language even better and this is what they taught we have here the record of what they were teaching so we can just pause right there and ask what is the main thing you should look for in a church What is the main thing? The main thing is biblical teaching. Teaching the Bible. Teaching it in the pulpit, in the classes, in discipleship, one-on-one, in groups, in in homes, constantly and consistently. The early church was a learning and studying church. And the primary focus is teaching, not whether or not the youth center has video game consoles. And no, we don't have video game consoles. No ideas. We don't need any video game consoles, okay? If the word is not central and is not being taught, then the church is missing its primary mark. The Bible cannot be set aside. The gospel is non-negotiable. The preaching of the word is non-negotiable. And yet it is not uncommon to hear it's not uncommon in the church to hear the attitude creep in that says stop teaching so much doctrine it divides it just puffs up beloved do not let this thinking sneak in the problem is not too much doctrine that's, that's like saying knowing more about God in his word hinders your Christian and church experience. To think that would be foolish. So then what is the real issue? Well, I think there could be three. It's a lack of teaching doctrine. It could be a lack of understanding doctrine You could pass the theology test in a seminary, but your heart hasn't been changed. You have no clue really what you're talking about. But I think primarily it is a lack of applying what we've learned from doctrine. The notion of of teaching so much theology often takes the brunt of the assault because we fail to intentionally apply what the Bible teaches us. I mean, do we really think that studying the depths of the humility of Christ that's seen in Philippians 2 is unhelpful? Well, of course not. Absolutely not. The the, the more I ponder the example of Christ's humility who humbled himself to the point of becoming a man and then dying on a cross when he didn't deserve it, taking my place, the more I dwell on that humility, I am driven more and more to realize I ought to set aside my own desires, my own rights for the well-being of others because Christ was the perfect example of that. The teaching of the Bible is fuel It's the fuel that is driving us forward on the track of godliness all the way to the finish line. And we need to know God's word better and be more intentional 
to find application for our lives from it. Remember James's warning. Don't just be hearers, be doers and hearers. We still need to hear it. We still need to know it. But we need to apply it. And it can be challenging to figure out how to apply it. And so I would encourage you, if you don't know how to apply the word, find an elder. Find a seasoned, mature Christian who has been walking with the Lord for a long time and go to them and say, will you help me? That's what we're here for, right? To help each other? No one in here would say, I have mastered it all. I know everything. If they say that, run away, okay? That's, that's one reason why we're trying to take Sunday school time here during the series to think, okay, how do we apply it? Because it's hard. And that gives us a chance to practice applying, thinking through how to get to application. And so speaking of application, here's a question we can draw away. If, the, if they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, I mean, they were consumed by it. It was constantly. And as we'll find, they met daily, actually, in the temple. Do we come with that attitude? Are we teachable? See, natural man does not like to have, to, to need to be teachable because there, there's pride and fear of man in that because it'll show that I'm, I'm in some sense, maybe I think I'm, they'll think I'm weak or inferior compared to other people. But that's not how the Christian should think. Christians ought to be the first to recognize that they don't know everything, especially about our infinite God. You, you don't. I don't. But we want to do what we can to learn more. Oh, I got an opportunity to learn more? Yes, sign me up. I want to know more. And, and that teachableness demonstrates humility. So we can find ways to continue and continue to learn and then apply what we learn. And, and you think about the context here in Acts. There is, there is an emphasis here on the teaching that came from qualified men, the leaders of the church, the apostles. Now, there are no apostles today, but we have the qualified men that God puts, over his, puts to oversee his church, and so we can at least start there. Uh, ask yourself, are you putting yourself in the flow of teaching and discipleship within the church? Think of a river, and you... The river, you got the water, it symbolizes the, the teaching of the word being passed on. Are you standing in that river receiving that word? Or are you on the bank just throwing your fishing line in whenever you want? We, we, we are to hear the word and then take it as we learn it, apply it, and then we, we apply it also by then going telling other people what we learned. We call that disciple-making. In a handful of weeks, we're going to talk about that more. So what can we do personally? Ask yourself, what, what can you do personally? How can you continue to study and saturate yourself in the Scriptures, read good books, and if you need any recommendation of good books, please come talk to Pastor Samuel and I. We, we like books. But we continue to study, we obey what God commands, and then we share it with others. And, and let that, what we're learning, what we're studying, what we're applying, let that be what is in our conversations with one another. That as we walk through the church, we hear people telling each other, hey, this is what I was reading in the Word, or I've been studying this topic, or I was reading this book that taught this, showed me in the Scriptures, teaches this about God, and let that encourage each other and let it keep stirring it up more and more. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were devoted to one another. There was devotion to one another. So they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. We're going to look at fellowship more in a few weeks, but we can know fellowship refers to a common bond, a harmonious, close association, a love and care for one another. It visibly shows the unity that we have in Jesus, both through attitude and action. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
So there's a right fellowship that needs to happen between you and God, and then that flows outward to a fellowship with one another. The late pastor James Montgomery Boyce wrote on this, saying, quote, The stronger your vertical fellowship is, the stronger your horizontal fellowship will be. If you come close to God, you will inevitably find yourself being drawn close to one another, being drawn close to other Christians. And it works the other way, too. If you spend time with other Christians, if you share a great deal with them, that fellowship will help to draw you closer to the Father. So as we draw closer to our Father and our personal walks with God, it draws us close to each other. And then yet, as we come closer to one another, it ought to be pointing us upward back to the Father. Which is where you see Paul talking about Ephesians, the church building itself up in love. We are to consider each other and meet together. Meet together in person. Hebrews 10, many of you probably know this passage, 10, 24, and 25 says... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what we are to be doing. The word fellowship here in in Acts 2, it's interesting. It, It contains, if you notice, the word the. The fellowship, we call this the definite article, which, which indicates that it's something a little more distinct and specific. It was, it was an intentional fellowship, the fellowship. It was an intentional gathering together in person. We'd, we'd call this corporate worship where our unity in Christ is on display. And listen, while video technology has been helpful Watching a service cannot replace actually being together for corporate worship. We need this in-person fellowship that worships God with one another side by side. I need that. We all need that. The corporate, and so they would do that. They would gather. They'd gather in the temple at this time. This is before persecution really kicked off. And we'll see, they they actually had favor with man. So they would gather corporately, but it didn't just stay there in these corporate gatherings, as we see in verses 44 and 45. It overflowed then into the rest of their life. Their Monday through Saturday, they were in each other's homes. They were with one another, fellowshipping, being taught, celebrating a meal together, taking the Lord's Supper, and on and on. And so the early church prioritized these gatherings and being with one another. Do we? Do we? Or is Sunday morning just something you just do every week? All right, I got got done with that. The Seahawks game's on. All right, that's what I'm really looking forward to today. I actually have no clue if they're playing today or not, but I think football's going, right? Their corporate gatherings overflowed into more personal times with one another in each other's homes. How are we doing at that? Maybe, maybe we should all evaluate our calendars and see what they show is the more, most important to us. Let us find ways to prioritize corporate and personal fellowship Sunday all the way back to the next Sunday. So they were devoted to fellowship. We see they were also, the third one, There was devotion to the ordinances. Devotion to the ordinances. He says, moving on, they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. To the breaking of bread. There is debate over does this just mean an ordinary meal or does this refer to something more? Does this refer to the Lord's Supper, to communion? Honestly, it could be both. Most commentators, and I would agree, believe that it at least includes communion, especially considering it's got the the there at the beginning. It gives it a distinctness, the breaking of bread. Later, when he talks about breaking of bread, he does not use that definite article. 
And so we could say this would be include communion, which would be one of the ordinances. The Lord established two ordinances before his uh, resurrection, death and resurrection. It's the Lord's table and baptism. These are uh, symbolic remembrances of what he has done in our union with him. We see in Acts 20, verse 7 and 11, that Paul gathers the church at Troas to break bread, it says, which would include a meal of celebration and communion. And that's when uh, Eutychius fell out of the window. He fell asleep. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach that long. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us more instruction on the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is a symbolic ceremony of remembrance, similar to what the Passover was when it was initiated. And the elements of bread and juice or bread and wine at the time represent the body and blood of our Lord, and they are to remind us of what the Lord has done to save us, remind us of his death. And we are to approach it soberly, with self-examination to see if there's any unconfessed sin in our life, yet it also proclaims the work of Christ. It's a, it's a ministry not just of remembrance, but a proclamation. And what is fascinating about the Lord's Supper is actually the fellowship communion com- aspect, the fellowship aspect that is in there just by taking it. We do it together. We, do the, we take communion together. We celebrate it together with other believers And in the midst of doing that, we are fellowshipping, we are encouraging one another and reminding each other that we are united in Christ because in Christ and in Christ alone are we saved. That's an interesting thought. Do we we come to communion thinking that we are doing this as one body? Or do we get stuck so self-focused? Well, the second ordinance is actually mentioned before Verse 42, and that was baptism. We saw in verse 38, verse 41, Jesus had commanded disciples to be baptized. Water baptism testifies to your union with Christ. It publicly is identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection. And it is for those who are saved by faith in Christ, the disciples, as Matthew 28 says, are to be baptized. And in the act of baptism, one proclaims publicly that they follow Jesus commanded that we be baptized. So it's our first act of obedience when we become believers. And the early church took baptism very seriously. You see it, especially in Acts, so closely connected to repentance, which at times has created confusion over passages like Acts 2.38. And so you wonder, why would they do that? Why would they so closely associate baptism and repentance. And it was because it was to be a response of obedience to the Lord, like we just talked about, the first act of obedience. And it made a loud statement to the world, to the Jewish culture at that time. It would be, it came with a high cost socially, especially for a Jew at that time, to say, I am identifying with Jesus And so we ought to take it seriously too. Have you been baptized? Maybe we should back up. Have you repented and trusted in Christ? If you have, have you been baptized? If you haven't, come talk to one of the elders. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Samuel. We'd love to talk more with you about it. But these, these ordinances, they, they were devoted to them. They were devoted continually to the breaking of bread. And they were to have this character of sobriety, of remembrance, of even rejoicing. I mean, remember what Jesus has done for us. I mean, that, should, that creates the greatest joy ever. So much joy that will flow over into eternity. The ordinances were acts of obedience and worship that the church prioritized And may we approach them the same way. Fourthly, they were devoted to prayer. So there was devotion to the word, devotion to one another, devotion to the ordinances, and devotion to prayer. It says, to the break, devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Interesting. Did you notice the word the was put on front of prayers there? 
I would think it would say, and prayer. But he says, the prayers. And like, Luke, why did you put the on there? That doesn't make sense. But it was used to indicate some unique, distinct time of prayer. There was some formal sense to it. And in their normal life as a gathered body, the church prayed. It's clear. That's what they did. And most likely as they met in the temple courts at this season in Acts, they probably engaged in the formal prayers of the temple. But it wouldn't have stopped there. It would have then overflowed to be just a part of their personal life. It was an essential part of the life of the church. The New Testament talks a lot about prayer, that we are to do it. First Thessalonians 5.16 says, Pray without ceasing. The apostles themselves had asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Acts 1.14 tells us that the church devoted themselves to prayer when looking to replace Judas. And we are to pray when we are anxious. Philippians 4, 6 tells us that. We're to pray for one another. James 5, 16. And on and on we could go. Prayer was key. Prayer is still key for the Christian life. Prayer demonstrates a dependence upon God. We need God. If you wonder how much you need God, well, just evaluate your prayer life and and ask, how many times am I asking God for something? That obviously shows you need God for something. It is a dependence on God. It is an act of worship. And a church that does not pray is not a healthy or biblical church. In fact, it is a self-focused church. We don't want to be a self-focused church. We want to be a praying church. So what can we do to grow in our prayer time? How can you find someone to help you grow in prayer? Here's an idea. Maybe find someone to meet with you just to pray together. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Just pray. Pray through the scriptures. If you live with a family member, then you got an obvious option. We have prayer meetings here the first Sunday of every month in the evening. It's time to pray. So Luke has provided four key functions of the early church, and these served as distinguishing marks of the life of the church that ought to still be present in every church and in every Christian to this day. Devotion to the Word, devotion to one another, Devotion to the ordinances and devotion to prayer. Could you say these priorities are present in your life? Now, the longest section was actually the one verse of the morning. We're going to look at 43 through 47 quickly. We see here the fruits, the fruits that the Holy Spirit produced as a result of these essential marks Verses 43 through 47. These are the fruits the Holy Spirit produced. We're just going to jump through them. The first is we see fear, or fear of the Lord. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. ESV says awe came upon the people. The NASB says sense of awe. Several other translations actually just translate it for what the word is, fear. There was a sense of fear mixed with reverential awe. As you know who God is and His transcendence and His holiness, you are quickly reminded, we are quickly reminded how small we are, how sinful we are, and there is a sense of fear and yet reverence that comes with that. Especially what was going on at this time in Acts. I mean, think of what they had just seen, and then they're, they're hearing the word preached, and people are being convicted of sin, and lives are changing, needs are being met. It would have been amazing, and it brought a sense of fear upon every soul, not just certain people. And we see this theme of fear or awe being present among the people, even in Acts 5, after the Ananias and Sapphira account, where they lied to God, as Peter would say, you lied to God, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and God strikes them down, and fear comes upon the people. We see it in Acts 19, 17, that the fear produced 
the name of Jesus being extolled more, meaning it, <clears throat> it created this attitude towards the name of Jesus, towards Jesus of being praised and honored and spoken greatly of, seen as greater than it was before because of what had happened. And I, I was thinking, asking myself, does, does my life and message, what I say, does it lead to this from others? Does it make Jesus look greater so that they want to magnify him more and praise him more? Or do I like to make myself look greater? But there were signs and wonders that were obviously being done, and this helped bring this sense of fear and awe. They were done, we see, by the apostles who were the primary teachers, the signs and wonders were meant to validate that the message these men were proclaiming throughout Jerusalem was really of God. They weren't just crazy people. And the, the words used here, signs and wonders, they, they carry an emphasis that points to something greater behind it. It is not the wonder of the sign that happened that's supposed to, ooh, wow, look at that thing, that's really cool. It was meant to draw you back to the greater reality, draw you back to God. Just like in Acts 2.22, we see Peter announce that Jesus was attested to them, to the Israelites, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Just like that, which was to, to indicate, was to point the people that they should listen and believe Jesus. And the same is true here for the apostles who were disrupting such life. That yes, this message they are proclaiming is true. It is from God. We see in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear of the Lord is essential, it's crucial to our lives. It's crucial in the church. It's the beginning of wisdom. You know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is, yes, I know facts. Wisdom is, I know how to take those facts and apply them and live in a God-honoring way. Fear of the Lord is a part of that equation. We aren't just to be puffed up with knowledge. That knowledge is to lead us to live in a God-honoring way. So there was a fear of the Lord that was present. We see in verses 44 through 47, so the rest of the chapter, there's this theme of unity. The fruit of unity was present. They, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common they provided for each other's needs and they gathered daily and they gathered not with a begrudging attitude of oh it's sunday morning it's so early i gotta where's my coffee i gotta get up and go to church they were joyful to meet with each other they were joyful to hear the word preached they were united together because this unity actually flows out of the gospel what the gospel does at, this, at the end of this series, we're going to actually look at the topic of unity in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and see that it is the gospel that creates true unity among us because we are all who have trusted in Christ. We are in Him. And if we're in Him, we are one with each other. We are one body. This unity was demonstrated by their devotion, devotion to partaking in the essentials together, Seen by a love to be with one another, there was a mutual care and concern. They sold goods to provide for needs. They lived and acted like a family, like we learned about last week, that we are a family in Christ. Which shows that the other, another fruit that was present was generous support. Generous support, verses 44 and 45 Verse 45 tells us they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. As any had need, as a need would arise, not just in general, but just when an actual need would arise, they did what was necessary to provide it. This is not communism, this is not socialism, or any system that requires everyone to distribute their wealth equally. Instead, this is done generously and voluntarily. And these provisions were given out of heart of love for others. As they, they learned doctrine, they learned more about God and what God had done for them and His generous provision, it produced a desire to reflect that to other people. And so the principle we can draw from this and even other passages in Scripture is that giving flows from a heart of worship 
of God and a love for others. Acts 20, 35 reminds us that it is more blessed to give than to receive. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul writes, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In fact, giving is an act of worship. That's to characterize our lives. We, we demonstrate thankfulness to God in it. And it reflects God back to others. Another fruit that was present we see in verse 46 was joy. Joy, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food, take note, with glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. They gathered together in the main fellowship, the corporate worship, but also in homes and in these smaller gatherings. They were sweeter times of just fellowship, teaching, prayer, praising God, and they did so with glad and generous hearts. The word glad has the idea of joy or delight. Like they actually wanted to be together. Like I can't wait to be with my church family. With a generous heart, the idea there is a simple or humble heart. There were, there were no strings attached in their gatherings. So that if you know, someone's need was met, well, I expect you to kind of you know, return the favor back to me. There was none of that. And they were overflowing with love and compassion and care for each other. Could it be said of us that we are a people that walk around with visibly glad and joyful hearts. This joy and fellowship overflows in the praise of God. This is another fruit. Verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all people. This is worship. They worship God. They praise Him for what He had done, what He was doing, and it was not only praising in the corporate gatherings, like when we meet together on a Sunday, but it was praising God even in other times when people would gather in homes. Worship is not bound to Sunday mornings. We ought to prioritize worshiping God all week long, from when we gather as a church family to when we're around the table with one another. We see they had in verse 47, favor with the community. Favor with the community. Praising God and having favor with all the people. The word here, favor, comes from the word grace. You could say they were walking examples of what Jesus said would happen when we love one another. John 13, 35 says, Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church lived in a way that by its virtues, walking in godliness, it did not harm society, but would actually make it flourish. And as they gathered in the temple courts, people had a clear example of a model citizen. But that model was set on the perfect model, Jesus Christ. And lastly, we see the fruit of conversions. People were being saved daily. How amazing. Daily. It says, the Lord, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Note, the Lord added the number. Added to their number. The Lord did this. Lord, meaning the master, the one in charge. This is referring to Jesus. The Lord is the one doing the saving here. The Lord is the one that gets the credit. Luke does not give the credit for these numbers to the people for what they were doing. He gives the credit to the Lord. I mean, Jesus said himself in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. He is doing it. He will continue to do it. Yet he was using the testimony of the apostles' teaching and the new lifestyle of the believers as a witness to the lost. People were being saved and brought into the church daily. And the reaction that should have come from that is praise God. You'll get to see those people someday. That'd be cool. So these fruits of fear, unity, generous support, joy, praise, favor, and conversions are the products of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church.
the work of the Holy Spirit in the church that hold fa- holds fast to its essential functions. Could you say that these fruits are evident in your life and in the life of Eastridge? At its core, a healthy church is devoted to God and to one another. To this day, the Holy Spirit is still at work in the church. Jesus is still building his church, and in this age where the church has become plagued by gimmicks and bad thinking, when it has become starved from the lack of Bible teaching and desperate for qualified shepherds, we can still trust that the Lord will work as he intends. We can hold fast to the priorities of the early church so that we too would be faithful to our Lord. We must not compromise with the devotion to the word, to one another, to the ordinances, and to prayer. These are the marks that you ought to look for in a healthy church. Or we could just say a biblical church. May we continue in them with a greater fervency trusting the Lord to produce fruit here at Eastridge. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have an account of what the life of the early church was like, and we can learn from that. Father, may we have an attitude of humility, a teachableness, a desire to want to know you better and better, to learn more and more, not just so that we can collect books and just say we know everything, but so that we can delight in you more and live lives of faithful obedience more, so that we can help one another more. Father, I pray that you would work in Eastridge to bring a health to it, make it healthy, make it biblical. As we strive to be biblical, it is our desire, I pray that you would bless that. Lord, raise up men and women who are equipped with the word, who go and make disciples, who are walking around with hearts of joy and gladness, so that as we gather together and worship you, we would just be filled with delight and looking forward to the day when we draw before the throne with thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of people to worship the Lamb. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.